It is hard to believe it's the last week of our Weathering Life Storms teaching series. So if you're just jumping in today for the first time, welcome. We're honored you're here. Obviously, the title of the series, we've been talking about storms, uh, but um, ultimately our hope is found in the foundation of Jesus Christ in those storms. And so we're glad you're here today, glad you're joining us online. We got a lot to cover, so I want to go ahead and jump right in and give you the title of today's message, The Storm of my choosing. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about how sometimes Jesus leads us into the storm. And if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that this week. Jesus led his disciples into a storm, and we talked about how the lessons they learned are very helpful for us when we feel like out of obedience, we ended up in the middle of a mess, in the middle of a storm. Today, however, is much different. We're gonna to talk today about storms in our life, and if we're honest, we have to admit we're the ones that got us there. Some of you are walking through a storm like that today, and you're here on our campus, or you're joining us online. Now, let me just say, great job. A lot of times if you're in a storm, and you know you did something, you sinned, or you made a mistake, or you did something we're supposed to do, and you're the one that got you into the mess, the last thing you wanna do is go to church or talk to God about it. And so I'm encouraged uh, that you're here. And today's uh, message is not intended to kick you while you're down, to beat you up. But there are some things we gotta talk about. If you're in a storm that you got yourself there, and then ultimately there is some hope for what to do to move forward with God from that storm. So if you have a Bible, we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put all the verses up here for you. And there are some message notes in your bullets and then I need you to go ahead and get out and get them ready because you're gonna be writing down a lot today, a lot more than usual. If you're joining us online, you can access the message notes at vaughnforest.com or through the Vaughn Forest Church app. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna read the story from 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the story of David and Bathsheba. And even people who've never been to church, that probably rings a bell, okay? Not, not exactly a good story, not a highlight in David's life. And what I wanna do as we read through the story, I'm just gonna read a few verses, then I'm gonna pause, and I'm gonna give you something to jot down, an observation, an application. And the seven things that you're gonna jot down from this story you could do any one of these seven things and they will land you in the middle of a storm. Now, David happens to do all seven of them in the same story, which is why it's such a mess. But, but you may have only done one of these things and that ultimately is going to land you in a storm and you're gonna be the only one to blame for it. So let's start reading the story. Like I said, I'll read a few verses. I'll pause to get you to jot down some things. We'll see if we can draw some applications from this today. Again, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11, Verse one, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, Joab is the commander of the army, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. If you're taking notes today, here's the first surefire way to land yourself in a storm. Translate God-given responsibility as unwanted pressure. You wanna get in a storm? Translate God-given responsibility as unwanted pressure. If you read 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, one of the common themes is that David is leading the Israelite army into war, into battle. And we may not necessarily understand that in our current context, but in David's context, that was one of his God-given responsibilities. This is one of the things God had commanded him to do. But did you notice how the passage began? It said in the springtime when kings go off to war, this time David sent Joab and he stayed home. 
He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He had a God-given responsibility, and at some point, David's like, I think I need a break. I think I'm just going to kind of sit this one out. I'll just let Joab take care of this. And, and David was giving into a temptation that the enemy has used for years, primarily geared towards men. So let's talk, let me talk to you for a second here, men, that God has given you responsibilities and the world says you need a break. The world says that's too much pressure. The world says, how can you relax a little bit? And then the world gives you a number of different ways that you can do that. And a lot of times what happens for men is, is they translate these God-given responsibilities as too much pressure, and so they look for something to relieve the pressure, and that's how they end up in substance abuse or alcoholism or pornography or an illicit affair. And, and what men have failed to realize is part of how God has wired us is to take on responsibility. So husbands, it is your responsibility to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Dads, it is your responsibility to model what walking with Jesus looks like in your home. It is your responsibility to provide financial resources for your family, which means you go to work and you do a good job. It's your responsibility to carry yourself the right way. And if you give into what the world says and you begin to translate that responsibility as unwanted pressure, you're going to end up in a storm. Men are like a um, flatbed trailer. You're behind a flatbed trailer on the interstate and there's nothing on it. Things everywhere. It's going in and out of its lane. Everybody's trying to get around it because you don't want it to hit your vehicle as you go by. But you get behind a flatbed trailer on interstate that, that is weighted down, that thing will go straight for hours. Men, that's you, okay? God created you to be weighted down with God-given responsibilities to stay on the straight and narrow path. But if you begin to see that as something you want to get out of, you're gonna find yourself in a storm. David made this mistake. Let's keep going in the story. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Let me give you the second surefire way to find yourself in a storm. Pursue temptation instead of turning away from it. Pursue temptation instead of turning away from it. So again, David is not where he is supposed to be. Bathsheba is not doing anything wrong in the story. We'll talk more about that here in just a few minutes. It's in the evening. It's when these things were supposed to be happening. And David's the one who decides to go for a walk on his roof. And he's walking around on his roof and he sees a beautiful naked woman bathing. Now at this point in the story, here's what David should have said. Holy cow. There's a naked woman and she's taking a bath. I better go back inside. That's what he should have said. That would have been the appropriate response to seeing a, can I say beautiful naked woman bathing enough? I think that's about four times, right? Am I making you uncomfortable yet? Beautiful naked woman bathing. Go inside. This one's easy. Okay, I ain't the smartest guy in the world. That's an easy one, okay? But what does David do? He doesn't go back inside. He grabs his binoculars. He then sends someone to find out, who is that? What's her name? He's pursuing temptation. See, you can't control the temptations that come into your life. The enemy is going to constantly put temptations in your life. It's up to you whether you pursue it or turn from it. So the biblical picture of Turning from this type of temptation is Joseph in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the story, a guy named Potiphar, his wife, man, she thought Joseph was something else. And so she made a move on Joseph and Joseph runs. That's the biblical picture. You run from temptation. You flee from temptation. Sometimes the enemy is gonna tempt you in your thought life. 
We talked about that a few weeks ago, the storm of our thought life and what to do with the thoughts that enter our mind. But listen, you can't live in this world and avoid temptation. There's gonna be inappropriate ads that pop up on your phone. What are you gonna do? There's gonna be things that come your way that are tempting. What are you gonna do? You're gonna say, that's not what a follower of Jesus pursues. I'm gonna turn away from that. And David does the exact opposite. And if you do what David did and you choose to pursue, pursue temptation, find out a little bit more about temptation. What is her name? It's what David does. You are literally gonna lead your life right into the middle of a storm. It gets worse. Let's go back to the story. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Here's the third surefire way to land yourself in a storm. Exploit other people for your own benefits. Exploit other people for your own benefits. Make no mistake about it, that's what David's doing here. One of my pet peeves is when people refer to this story as adultery between David and Bathsheba. Now, adultery ain't good. Adultery got two people doing what they're not supposed to be doing, but on some level, we understand that in adultery, the two people doing what they're not supposed to be doing have both chose to do what they're not supposed to be doing. That's not this story, church. Let's make sure we're all on the same page here. Bathsheba doesn't have a say in this. David's the king. David can do anything he wants. In fact, one of the reasons why when David was anointed king by Samuel, God called David a man after my own heart is because David did not view the role of king as that. See, worldly kings used their role as king to exploit other people for their benefits, but not David. Not David. David's different. David's a man after God's own heart, but David forgot who he was, and in this situation, he chose to exploit Bathsheba. And obviously, if you choose to exploit someone else sexually, you're gonna lead your life right into the middle of a storm. But it doesn't just have to be that. You say, I would never exploit someone, but you use people, don't you? You use people. You don't look at people as image bearers of God. You look at people as people you can use to help advance whatever it is you want to advance. Did you know that you can be in a marriage and use your spouse? Not love your spouse the way we're commanded, but kind of use your spouse. You can use your kids. See this all the time. Parents who are using their kids to address some deep-seated wound because they didn't get elected to student council in the high school or chosen to be on the baseball team or selected for the cheerleading squad. So now they're using their kids to somehow soothe this deep wound using people. You can use people at work. You can have a friendship with somebody who genuinely loves you and cares about you, but you're just using that person for some other reason. And listen, it may not happen today. It may not even happen this month, but eventually if you go through life and you use people and you exploit people and it's all about you and what you can get from them, you will land yourself in a storm. And when you do, the reputation that you've created will be the very reputation that everybody nods and says, yep, saw that coming. People are not placed in our lives for us to use them. And if you see people that way, you'll land yourself in a storm. Let's go back to the story. So the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. I wish this was the end of the story. And if this was the end of the story, it would still be really bad. I mean, David's already done a series of things that he should not have done, and now She's pregnant. And if David would have come clean right here in this moment, there would have been some consequences. Make no mistake about it. There always are when you come clean, when you're in a storm that you got yourself into. But David doesn't do that. 
He just keeps going and he keeps making it worse. Verse six. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Now remember, these guys are out fighting, which is why he has to send word to Joab. Hey, Uriah is fighting. Let him come on back to Jerusalem. So when Uriah, verse seven, came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. It's just, he's making small talk. Verse eight, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. So David asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Look at Uriah. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is a man of integrity, character, godliness. He's like, there's no way. My brothers are still fighting. I don't even know why you called me here. Uriah is the one that's acting like a man after God's own heart in this story, not David. So David says, well, I'll just keep figuring out a way to make this happen. So David says to him, well, just stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. Look what David does. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he did not go home. Let me give you the next surefire way to end your life up in the middle of a storm. Exert much effort in your deception exert much effort in your deception. Do you see the amount of effort that David is putting into this deception to bring him back home so that nine months later when there's a baby, everybody can kind of look at the calendar and go, oh yeah, that was the weekend Uriah came home. We saw the pictures on Facebook. That makes sense. Okay, we can kind of you know, do the math and that makes a lot of sense here. But Uriah is a man of integrity. So no, that's not, how, that's not how I'm spending my weekend. My brothers are still fighting. And then David gets him drunk. I mean... The amount of effort that David is putting into his deception is staggering. And for some of you, you know the feeling. You're in the middle of a mess. You haven't come clean. You're trying to cover your tracks. You're trying to make sure you don't get caught. And it is exhausting. And it is wearing you out. Why? Because deception always requires effort can't sleep at night, short-tempered, and it's because you've, you've built this life, or you've built a particular area of your life on deception. And as long as you keep exerting effort to deceive others, you're just making it worse. We see this as we keep reading in the story. So finally, verse 14, well, not finally, we still got a ways to go, okay? Don't leave yet. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Uriah's now got to carry back to war his death wish. That's what's happening here. So in it, David wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Let me give you the next surefire way to land yourself in the middle of the storm. Control the situation no matter the cost. 
If you want to get in a storm, just control the situation no matter the cost. Any situation. Now, obviously, in this situation, controlling it meant David had Uriah murdered. So now he's exploited Bathsheba. He's tried to deceive Uriah, and now he's literally murdered him. What do we see here? We see someone who has to stay in control, and it doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter that it costs an upright man his life. David's got to stay in control. And for some of you, you're trying to control a situation in your life, and it hasn't led you to plotting someone's murder, but, but you've got some issues with control. Now, here's what's so jacked up about our culture. We've actually held that up as a value. We say things like, well, I'm just a control freak, like wearing that as a badge of honor. Can I tell you, that's not good. Calling yourself a control freak is not good. That is not a badge of honor. Now, I can say this because I'm a control freak in recovery, okay? I'm a control freak in recovery. So let me tell you what the enemy does with those of us who struggle with control. The enemy takes a strength that God has given us, and he twists it. Did you know that the enemy will do that sometimes in your life? This may not be the issue for you, but whatever strength you have, it has a shadow side. So the strength that those of us who struggle with control have is this value of responsibility. We're responsible. We like to take responsibility. Now what the enemy does is he twists that and he can, if he works on us long enough and we don't spend time in God's word and we don't take this before the Lord, we can begin to view being responsible as seizing control. And this is not how God would have it. And I've had some men in my life over the years who have said, Adam, you are trying to control the situation and that is not what God is calling you to do. And I had to repent and I have to move forward and I have to submit this area of my life and I have to ask people to hold me accountable. How am I doing? Is that control freak side coming out or am I being better in this area? See, you can't be a control freak and walk by faith simultaneously. Don't argue with me, you'll lose. You can't be a control freak and walk by faith simultaneously. You can't be a control freak and say you trust God simultaneously. Those two things are incongruent. So where are you trying to control things? Is it with your kids? Is it with your teenagers? Hey, sometimes those teenagers will pipe down a little bit if you would just loosen up the control. Is it with your spouse? Is it with your career? Is it with your boss? Is it with the church? Is that, I mean, I, I don't know what the area is, but if you wrestle and you struggle with this, I've got to be in control. I can't relinquish control. I have a difficult time with trust and I have a hard time with faith. I hear what you're saying as someone who, again, control freak in recovery. But at some point, you gotta repent from that or it's gonna land you in the middle of a storm. It's gonna land you in the middle of a storm because you're not walking in God's will for your life, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 22, so the messenger set out. Now, who on earth is this messenger? This is the guy I feel, you know, really bad. He's one of the people I feel, I feel worse for Bathsheba, but the messenger is probably like, she's one and he's one A. Who's the messenger? The messenger is now the guy that Joab writes a letter and says, I need you to go back and I need you to explain everything to David and what's happened. And of course, David and Joab are in on this. They've conspired to have Uriah killed. The messenger doesn't know anything. And so I skipped a few verses where Joab basically says, now listen, when you go tell David that Uriah's died, he's probably gonna get really mad. So here's what they say. And, and, and it's like almost he's trying too hard in the story. 
It's almost like he's performing a role, almost like a movie. He's up for an Academy Award. And, and so he's telling him. And, and, and so this poor messenger is like, I've got to tell the king that, that Uriah died. And Uriah was one of David's mighty men. You can find this in other parts, the story of David's life. Okay, so this is the messenger. So he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and they came out against us in the open. But we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now, Joab had told him at this point, now you're gonna have to defend our military strategy that led to Uriah being dead. But David doesn't do that. David's now going for his Academy Award. Look at the acting that David does, okay? David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this, look at this, how fake this is, to encourage Joab. He's a fraud, a complete fraud. This level of deceit, can I tell you what's happening now? And we're watching it. As we read the story, we're going, who is this? That he would act like this. And that's exactly what happens when you lead yourself in a storm and you just keep going and you just keep going. So here's the principle to get you in the middle of a storm. Fail to recognize that you don't even recognize who you are anymore. You don't even see it. You want to get in a storm? Fail to recognize that you don't recognize who you are anymore. This is not King David. This isn't how David acts. This isn't the young man who boldly went out to defeat Goliath and looked at Goliath and said, hey, here's the thing. Today, the God of Israel is going to deliver you into my hands and then I'm gonna cut off your head just to make sure everybody knows that our God will not be defeated. You're like, whoa, that's awesome. I like that story. This is the same David who had the integrity when given the opportunity to kill King Saul, who was trying to kill him, said, I will not lay my hand on God's chosen king. Is now the same guy that we're reading in this story and we don't even recognize that king anymore, do we? And listen, let this be a warning that when you are deceived this much, when you've plotted and schemed this much, when you've continued to suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit this much, that eventually you're going to get to a place where you don't even recognize who you are anymore. And it's gonna take somebody coming in your life and saying, what are you doing? Who are you? And everything in you is going to want to defend yourself and make them the problem and make them the issue. And right now, that might be actually happening in this room. You're thinking of 57 things you'd like to say to me right now, that if I just understood your situation, that's all that you're doing right now. And let me tell you what you're doing. You're just continuing to suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You keep, you keep going, you stay on your track. I'll sleep like a baby tonight. It has nothing to do with me. You're the one who's gonna ultimately end up in a mess. If you don't see what's happening, and David didn't see it. He literally didn't see it. He's in the middle of it, and he doesn't see it. So let's go back and see kind of how this whole account ends up. When Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead. I love that scripture is so faithful to keep calling her Uriah's wife. That makes my heart happy. God's like, I got your back, Bathsheba. 
I'll make sure everybody knows who you were in this story, Uriah's wife. Go to Matthew chapter one at some point today, this afternoon, you get a little bored. Just open up Matthew chapter one. And when you read through the lineage that gets us to Jesus, guess what Bathsheba is called? Bathsheba, who had been Uriah's wife. God's like, I'll get your back in the Old Testament. I'll get your back in the New Testament. I love that about our God, okay? Just a little side note. So when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Look at this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Here's the seventh way to land yourself in the middle of a storm. Forget that God sees all and knows all. Just forget that God sees all and knows all. And if you forget that, you'll get yourself in a storm. David is exerting so much effort in his deception and in his cover-up and in his lies that he literally forgets. A man after God's own heart literally forgets. God sees it all, David. God knows it all. And, and, and David, you're not fooling anybody. And listen, you're not fooling anybody. If you're in the middle of a storm that you placed yourself in, God knows. He knows how you got there. You may have fooled a lot of other people, but you can't fool God. So let me tell you what happens. I'm gonna summarize what happens. God's gonna confront David about this. And the way that God is going to confront David is by sending the prophet Nathan. So what I'm gonna do is I wanna summarize the conversation that Nathan had with David, and then we're gonna jump back into scripture so you can see uh, what ends up happening after this little story. So David shows, excuse me, Nathan shows up one day and says, David, let's have a talk. He says, David, let me tell you a little account I've recently been made aware of. There's a rich guy and there's a poor guy. And this rich guy, he's got hundreds of cattle and he's got hundreds of sheep. But the poor guy, he's only got one little lamb. And man, they love this lamb. He and his wife and their kids, they've actually named the lamb. They let the lamb eat dinner with them. It's literally become a part of their family. And this rich guy, one day, a traveler showed up at his house. And David, as you know, our customs, when visitors come, we prepare them a meal. And so the rich guy, instead of going and selecting one of his hundreds of cattle or one of his hundreds of sheep, he goes down the road to this poor guy's house and he takes that one little lamb that was a part of their family and he brings that little lamb back. And that's the meal that he prepares for this guest. And David loses it. David loses his mind. He says, I need to know immediately who this person is. I can't believe that they would be that harsh and not show compassion and not have that level of empathy. And he says, may the Lord strike me down if I don't see that man killed. This is David's reaction upon hearing about this story. And look what Nathan says after David's reaction. Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. You're the man in the story. And you basically just condemned yourself to death by the reaction you had to this story. And Nathan doesn't hold back. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Nathan says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your 
own. You killed him. Now, you may have used the sword of the Ammonites, but David, you're the one who killed Uriah. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. David is confronted with his sin. David is confronted with his deceit. David is confronted with what got him into the storm. And I need you to flip over to the back of your notes because what I want to do is I want to walk you through what David did. What David did. And if you find yourself in a storm of your choosing, how David reacted when being confronted is a great model for each of us when we're confronted with the sin that landed us in the storm. So here's the first thing David does. David admits his sin. He admits it. He owns it. So after hearing Nathan say some pretty strong words to David on behalf of the Lord, look at what David's response is. David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, don't miss this. David could have had Nathan killed. I mean, Nathan comes and confronts him with all this. David's the king. We've already seen him abuse his power once in the story. He could have had Nathan killed and said, well, you know, we'll just see how many people God keeps sending my way. I'm not going to come clean with all this. But he doesn't. He admits it. And he admits that his sin, while affecting others, is primarily against the Lord. And listen, if that's where you are today, that's the first step. To quit blaming. Don't blame somebody else. Don't blame your circumstance. Don't blame your absent father growing up. You've got to own it. You've got to admit that it's your sin that landed you in this storm. Here's the second thing David does. David asks God to forgive him for his sin. So once David admits that he has sinned, David has a big enough view of God that David knows God can forgive him for his sin. In Psalm chapter 51 in the Bible is where we see this. Psalm chapter 51, David penned this psalm after being confronted by Nathan for what he had done. So let's go to Psalm 51 and let's see what David says. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. I love this, that, that David's appeal to God is not based on who David is. David's appeal to God is based on who God is. So David says, God, have mercy on me, not because I deserve it, but because of your loving kindness, the multitude of your tender mercies. And it's because of that, here's what I can ask you to do, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's basis for asking God to forgive him and cleanse him of his sin is who God is. And can I give you some good news this morning? You can ask God to do the same thing. That Jesus went to the cross for your sin. That he carried the weight of your sin, the shame of your sin, the pain of your sin. That the payment for your sin has been paid. And then when you ask God to forgive you because of what Jesus did on the cross, God can wash you and clean you and cleanse you from the iniquity of your sin. He can blot out your transgressions as well. But look what else David does. I think this gets missed sometimes in this story. David is then broken over his sin. So he asked God to forgive him for his sin. But in doing so, there's a brokenness that comes with this. And I think sometimes, church, we miss this. Someone goes, yeah, you know, I've kind of gotten myself in a mess and I haven't always done things right and I haven't always lived my life by the good book and I've made a few mistakes, but I'm just so grateful that, you know, Easter and, and uh, Jesus was the third day walked out of the tomb and I, I can just ask him to forgive me. And, and, I, and there's just this flippant nature 
about sin that put Jesus on a cross. And part of recognizing that, Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. My sin put him on the cross. Part of recognizing that is a little bit of brokenness. David understood this. He was devastated by his sin. Look at what he said in Psalm 51. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Please don't miss this. A broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. When's the last time you were broken over your sin? When's the last time you had a contrite heart before God? Do you know what God can't help but notice a heart that's broken over its sin. A heart that says, God, I'm devastated by what I've done. And I know you can forgive me, but I'm broken over it. Seeing what's been happening in our country, college students, at Asbury and other campuses, it's happened before. It happened some in the 70s and it's happening now, and the one common thread is young people confessing their sin, being broken over their sin. That's how every single one of these have started. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because God wants to pour out his spirit, but please, church, don't miss this. God only pours out his spirit into clean vessels. God isn't looking for perfection, but he is looking for hearts that pursue righteousness in a world that doesn't. God's not looking for perfection, but he is looking for broken and contrite hearts over sin. He says, God, we will turn from that and we will turn to you and we will walk in holiness and we will walk in righteousness and we will pursue you that we may be pure vessels that you use. And when God sees that, God pours out his spirit. See, everybody wants revival, but not everybody wants to come clean with God. Everybody wants to see a great move of God, but not everybody wants to get that real, that honest, that authentic, where you actually have to let the things that you've been suppressing rise to the surface and then be broken over them and then turn from them. God says, do that and watch me pour out my spirit on my people. He will not despise them. He can't help but take notice. This is why, even after this account, God still says about David, that's a man after my own heart, being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean you don't mess up. Being a man after God's own heart means what do you do when you find out that you've messed up? You're broken. You pursue righteousness. You pursue holiness. And then the fourth thing we see from David is that David moves forward from his sin as a testimony of God's grace. He repents. Repentance means you move in a new direction. You can't move forward as long as you're in the same direction as your sin. But once you move forward... You can move forward as a testimony of God's grace. Look at what David says in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach your transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. God, I'm gonna sing your praises. I'm gonna be a testimony of your grace. Do you know what's remarkable about our God? is the, the child that Bathsheba conceived, you can read about this in your own time, that child ended up dying as a consequence of David's sin. But here's what's remarkable about our God. 
Bathsheba conceived again. And this time, that son, it's Solomon. God gave Bathsheba the gift of Solomon. Wow. The wisest man who ever lived. The person who constructed the temple. The lineage of Jesus Christ. This is God saying, watch this. I'll get in the middle of this mess and I will bring a testimony of my grace. Would you bow your head with me this morning? For some of you, that's the good news you need to hear. You are in a mess and you got yourself into it. But can I tell you this morning that if you will come clean and you will confess and you will repent and you'll stop blaming and you'll submit to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you'll repent from it, and you'll be broken over it, and you'll claim the blood of Jesus Christ on it, you can move forward in God's grace. God is not done with you. God loves you. That hasn't changed. God loved you enough to let Jesus be broken on the cross over your sin. God has purposes for you. God has good things for you. You haven't messed it up. You just messed up. We've all done it. The question now is, what are you going to do? Can I encourage you to turn from it? Can I encourage you to repent from it? And recapture the joy of your salvation. Be a testimony of God's grace. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your graciousness. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. God, we thank you that it's not about our performance. God, we thank you for the cross. God, we want to be a clean people who pursue righteousness and holiness. We want lives that are marked by you. And God, for some of us, we have lost our way. And we've been confronted today. God, thank you that you don't confront us or convict us and then leave us in it. You confront us and convict us to move us forward in freedom because of the price that your son Jesus paid on the cross for us. And so God, as we enter into this time of response, do business with your children. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, can I invite you to stand as we respond in worship this morning?